Hey everyone, welcome to The Orchard Podcast with Amy Hughes and Rachel Hughes. We hope this episode encourages and inspires you today. I hope you're enjoying the day so far. We've been building on this theme uh, that we've been exploring through John 15, uh, all around the vine. Jesus is the vine with the branches. We are to remain in him. And I don't know, uh, I don't know if you've been following that new story uh, the last couple of weeks about that tree. You know, the tree, the Sycamore Gap tree that was uh, right there in the gap along Hadrian's Wall and, and how it got chopped down like mysteriously and brutally in the middle of the night. There's the, the story headline you can see on this, the screen there. Now, I have to incidentally tell you something. Can I tell you something? that is really weird. Uh, This has nothing to do with the point that I'm wanting to make, but it's just too weird not to mention it to you. You know that sycamore tree is the exact same tree that we used as the image for all the lead up to the conference. I think there's another slide. It's the same tree. How we, I know. And you know, the night that it got chopped down was the night that we sold the very last ticket for this conference. I know all the prophets and ten I are like, what does that mean? I mean, we prayed protection. We were like, Lord, are you speaking? There hasn't been a conclusive word, as, but it just seemed a bit weird. Anyway, park that thought just for a moment. If you were following the news coverage, then uh, you'll know that there was outrage Rightly so, there was outrage about this tree being cut down, such a beautiful, healthy, iconic, vibrant tree just mercilessly hacked down for no apparent reason. And you know, there is something, isn't there, in the human psyche that when we read a story like that, we, re- we respond, we react to the senselessness of it, to the wastefulness of it, because it seems so wrong. But here's the thing, If anyone else followed the news coverage as closely as I did, then you will know that the experts are saying that that seemingly desolate stump will likely to grow back again. And there we go. There is a picture of a sycamore stump regrowing. Now, I'm not saying for a second that that justifies the the terrible thing that happened at that particular sycamore tree being locked down in the first place. But, but, when something appears so full of life that is then so drastically cut back or pruned, it isn't necessarily game over. On the contrary, it could mean that there is new life coming. It could mean that there is more life coming, that there is more vitality, more fruitfulness on its way. And so this morning, if Amy camped out at John 15 verses five, uh, for this next little while, we are gonna camp out at John 15 verses one and two. And so we're gonna read, in fact, why don't we read these verses together? If you've got a Bible, you might not be able to see it, um, but the words are gonna appear on the screen. So why don't we read those verses together? Are you ready? I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit while every branch 
that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it would become even more fruitful. And so Jesus is saying that every branch that is connected to the vine, as Amy unpacked for us this morning, every branch that remains in the vine, every branch that is drawing its sustenance, its life force from the vine, every branch that is bearing fruit, every one of those branches is gonna get pruned every one of them in order that they would become even more fruitful. Essentially, that means every human being, every one of us who has said yes to following Jesus, who has said yes to remaining in the vine, everyone who has made relationship with Jesus their central priority, the very reason for their existence, every human being who is in Christ Every one of us, we will be pruned. We will be pruned. And right here we see in John 15 verses one and two, Jesus makes it very clear that this pruning that we will all experience, it has a purpose. And so I've called this message pruning for purpose. Pruning for purpose. You see, pruning isn't like the sadistic preoccupation of a psychotic gardener. You know, the gardener doesn't just like hack away at the healthy vines because he feels like it, because he enjoys inflicting like pain and discomfort on the very vines that he planted as saplings, the very vines that he has nurtured into life. No, this pruning, it has a purpose. And the purpose that we read of pruning is fruitfulness. We are pruned that we would become even more fruitful. And you know, we've got Jo Saxton with us. Uh, yes, and she is gonna be unpacking a bit more tonight about what it looks like for us to live lives of fruitfulness. But in essence, fruitfulness is really about, it's about human flourishing. Fruitfulness is about every one of us living a life that counts for something. It's about living a worthwhile existence while we're here on earth. It's about giving ourselves away for the sake of others. It's about becoming more of the person that God created us to be. And in order for all those wonderful things to happen, we are gonna need to get pruned. And I think that there are two ways that God prunes us, two ways that God prunes us that we're gonna to explore tonight, this afternoon, not quite tonight, this afternoon. Anyone completely lost track of the time? Me. And the two ways that God wants to prune us, I think, he wants to prune us from our sin and he wants to prune us through our pain. Here's, here's the bad news about sin. God, God hates sin. God hates sin and God hates sin because of what it does to his children. Here's the good news about sin, that God has dealt with the problem of sin through salvation. 
Through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, the problem of sin has been dealt with. The eternal consequences that come from sin, the effect that sin has in creating the separation between God and human beings, it has been dealt with through salvation once and for all. It has been crushed, annihilated, but God wants to deal with the power of sin that still exists in our everyday lives through this word sanctification. Sanctification, and sanctification is that ongoing work. It's the ongoing work of being refined, of being healed up, of being stripped away of anything, anything that's wanting to pull us away from God, away from stepping into lives that are becoming more fruitful, more flourishing. And sometimes God does that through the work of pruning. Hebrews 12 says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. God is wanting to prune the weeds that that attach themselves, the, the weeds of sin that tangle us up, that tie us up, that, that rob us of our freedom. You may or, or may not be aware of what happened in Asbury last year. There was this outpouring of God's presence that just took hold of this relatively small chapel on this college campus in this place called Asbury in the States. And, and over a number of weeks, thousands, I mean thousands of people from all across the world just flocked to this place in order that they might just catch a glimpse of what God was doing. And two of the people who went over there were my friend Al and my brother-in-law Pete. And you know, they came back and they told us that they were bowled over by the presence of God in that pretty humble, modest chapel. In fact, they said the whole setup was like so simple, so understated, faceless even. But they also said that one of the things that marked that outpouring was confession and repentance. Hour after hour, day after day, these young people, these Gen Zs, pouring in, pouring to the front in the power of the presence of God just to confess their sin, to repent of their sin, suddenly aware of these patterns of sin that were tangling them up, that existed in their lives. No one told them to do it. No no one said that they should do it. They weren't responding out of a sense of duty or, 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 or a sense of shame even. They just knew that God was wanting to purify them, to prune them from their sin. Through confession and through repentance, they were, they were powerfully encountering the presence of God and being set free by it. You know, because it's through confession that we acknowledge our need for repentance. And it's through repentance that we experience forgiveness. And it's through forgiveness that the power of sin is broken. And it's through the power of sin being broken in our lives that we walk into greater freedom. And it's through walking into greater freedom that we live out lives of greater fruitfulness. That's how it works. 
You know, there is a spiritual dynamic at play when we make the choice to name our sin, to confess it before God, to bring it to Him. When we choose repentance to turn away, that's literally what repentance means, to turn in the other direction, to turn away from our sin, to allow His forgiveness to fill us, to flood our hearts and our minds. That's when strongholds are broken. You know, that's when idols get torn down. That's when thought patterns are are transformed. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But the danger is we limit our understanding of confession and repentance. We we think that confession and repentance is primarily for when we break the rules. You know, we know what the rules are, and when we break the rules, oh, that's when we use confession and repentance. But the essence of confession and repentance is not about breaking the rules because the, the essence of sin is not merely about breaking the rules. The essence of sin is much deeper than that, deeper but more subtle. You know, the essence of sin is to substitute something else in the place of God. To substitute something else and put in the place that only God should take. It's when we take something else and we put it on the throne of our lives. The throne that only Jesus should be seated on. And the Bible calls it idolatry. It's a word that feels a little bit clunky for us. But idolatry is essentially about worship. Because anything that we put on the throne of our lives, we will worship. The human heart has been predisposed towards worship. It's just like in us. It's a reflex within the human heart to worship. And whatever we put on the throne of our lives is the thing that we will worship. And whatever we worship is the thing that we will end up putting our trust and security in. And putting our trust and security in anything other than Jesus does not go well for the human heart. And you know what, we do this all the time. I think we do this all the time and most of the time we don't even realize we're doing it and we don't recognize that it is robbing us of the freedom and the fruitfulness that we are desperately longing for, the freedom and the fruitfulness that Jesus died on the cross for our sake. And so if the essence of sin is placing our trust and our security in something other than Jesus, then the essence of sincere confession and repentance is to lay those things down, to tear those things down, to take them off the throne of our lives, to tear down the idols and to put our trust in Him and Him alone, to worship Him and Him alone, to be fully reliant, fully dependent on Jesus and only Jesus. 
It sounds so simple, doesn't it? But the problem is we don't just misunderstand what confession and repentance is for, we also resist it. We resist it because of pride and shame. You know, pride will tell us you don't need it. And shame will tell us you don't deserve it. Pride will say, you know what, you're doing really well on your own. You don't need God. You certainly don't need God to forgive you. You've not really done anything too bad anyway. Shame will say, there is too much mess in your life for God ever to forgive you. You just keep making the same old mistakes over and over again. You are too messed up. You have gone too far. And so we think confession and repentance is about temporarily appeasing this God that is so angry with us because we just continually screw things up all the time. But Romans 2, 4 tells us it's God's kindness. It's God's kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. There is a connection between God's kindness towards us and our need for repentance. You know, listening to Amy's story this morning, I recognize so much of her story in mine. And since I was a young teenager, I, similarly to Amy, lived under this belief that I was ugly. I lived under it like a weight, like a narrative that never left my mind. I looked at the other girls in my class who all the boys seemed to be attracted to. I looked at the the women in the glossy magazines and I came to the conclusion that I wasn't enough, that I wasn't good enough, I wasn't pretty enough and that there were aspects of the way that I looked that I hated, I hated, uh, that I felt were profoundly ugly. And for so long, I would experience this deep sense of disappointment every time I looked in the mirror, and that feeling went on for years, and over time, I got better at putting makeup on and styling my hair in a particular way and wearing the right clothes, and I also began to use casual sexual encounters as a way to kind of temporary silence the voice that was telling me that I was unlovable unless a guy found me physically desirable. And when I finally came to Jesus in my early 20s, something definitely shifted at that point. I can remember experiencing the the love of my father, the love and the delight of my heavenly father. And I remember God's word becoming like this powerful tool in my hands, speaking truth over some of the false narratives that I had bought into. But truthfully, those feelings of ugliness were never far away. And honestly, it's only been in the last couple of years through the help of an amazing therapist that I have been able to recognize what was happening. And what I realize now is that I had made an idol out of looking a certain way, out of being a certain size and weight. And I was choosing to live in this prison of toxic vanity and food control. And I was blind to see that God was wanting to renew my mind 
through confession and repentance. Not because God was angry with me, no, because he loves me so much and because he designed me to function best when he has the final say over my identity and when every other idol that is fighting for my affection and my attention is torn down. And so when those thoughts would come into my head as they often did, I would begin, I would begin to pray differently to how I'd been praying before. I would pray, Lord, I confess that I have made looking a certain way an idol. Lord, I repent that I have made an idol out of being a particular weight or a particular size. Lord, I repent that I have colluded with the value that the world places on my outward appearance. Lord, I repent of the need for people to like the way that I look. Lord, I repent of my need for people to approve of the way that I look. And as I began to regularly pray those prayers, I allowed God to prune me, to prune away the sin, to dethrone the idol, and it was through confession and repentance, and I can honestly say that I have experienced more freedom and more fruitfulness in that area of my life than I ever thought was possible. God wants to prune us from our sin, but he also wants to prune us through our pain. He wants to prune us through our pain. Here's the thing about pruning. Just because Jesus tells us that pruning has a purpose. Just because the purpose of pruning is to lead us to greater fruitfulness, greater flourishing and all that good stuff, it doesn't mean that the process or the experience of pruning at times is any less uncomfortable, any less painful, any less confusing at times. Do you know who, who prays the prayer Please, God, prune me. No one, no one at all prays that prayer. And have you ever seen a vine dresser pruning a vine? It's not pretty. It actually looks pretty brutal, and that's why it's so important that we take the time to talk about what it's like to be pruned. We don't just go around claiming that because we are in the vine, because we are in Christ, life is constantly a bed of roses. See what I did there? That was, that was quite clever. Because I think for many of us, what happens is we discover life in the vine. We discover life in Christ. And we are fully bought into the promise of John 10.10, you know, life in all its fullness. We want to walk in the reality of Ephesians 1, that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're standing on the victory of all that Christ won for us on the cross and through his resurrection, but then life gets hard and we don't get the outcomes that we want and maybe we feel overlooked or, or things get tough spiritually and we experience disappointment and pain and because we're in Christ, we feel cheated. 
We feel surprised, we're confused, we're hurting, and instead of seeking God, drawing closer to the vine, in those moments we pull away, we question God, we question His provision, we, we question His power, we question His promises, His goodness, we question His existence even. I wonder if there are some women here and you are hanging on by a thread, like it is no small miracle that you are even here today And I believe that God is wanting to say to you, I am real and I am good and I want to be in your life. I want you to be in the vine. Now I'm not about to give a comprehensive theological explanation for why certain things happen or certain things don't happen. One, because it would be way above my pay grade. Uh, Two, because there are much cleverer theologians than me that still can't figure it out. And three, because actually it doesn't help us. But what I do know is this, that there are certain things that happen in our lives, certain things that don't happen in our lives, and sometimes it's because of the choices that we've made, quite frankly. Sometimes it's because we live in a world that is broken, that is full of broken people that end up hurting one another. Sometimes it's because we have an enemy who is hell-bent on turning us away from Jesus, and if he can do that through difficult circumstances, he will give it his best shot. And sometimes certain things happen or certain things don't happen, and it is just a mystery. And we will never understand fully this side of eternity. What I don't believe is that God deliberately inflicts pain or punishment on his children. But what I do believe is that if we allow him, he will use every negative experience that we go through to shape us, to prune us into more of the person that he intended us to be. And that through it, more kingdom fruit would be released. I also know that Hebrews 12 says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's really important at this point that we get our understanding of the word discipline right, that we're not projecting onto it any unhelpful or harmful experiences that we may have had in the care of adults that had authority over us. Discipline is not coercion. Discipline is not manipulation. Discipline is not being made to feel afraid or belittled. Discipline isn't punishment. Discipline isn't withholding love and affection and connection. Discipline is training for those who have been trained by it, says Hebrews 12. Now, Tim and I, we have five kids uh, ranging from 16 down to almost three. And one of the aspects of family life that I find excruciatingly testing is my children's collective capacity to create unimaginable amounts of mess and chaos in our home. Now, I don't think that I have unrealistic standards of cleanliness and order. 
I need to tell you. But I draw the line when their bedrooms begin to resemble science experiments. I draw the line. And I have to confess that as a parent, I have approached this problem over the years in a range of different ways. I have, on occasion, raised my voice. I have, on occasion, expressed noticeably my exasperation. I have, on occasion, begged and pleaded. I have broken down in tears. I have sulked and slammed doors. I have compared them to other angelic, tidy children. I have threatened them with consequences that I have no intention of dishing out. Actually, that's Tim's favorite approach. He will say things like, right, your birthday will be canceled. <laughs> no intention of dishing that out. But let me tell you something, none of it has worked. None of it has worked. The science experiment is still well and truly in full swing. And then I had this revolutionary idea. I realized that I was approaching the problem from the perspective of how it affected me. My goal was to alleviate mess from my home. But I realized that the better goal was to train them, to help them to realize how wonderful it was to live outside of a science experiment. And so here's what I did. I said to the kids, right, every Sunday at 6 p.m., I'm going to come and check to see if your room is clean and hoovered and tidy. I'm not going to nag you through the week. I'm not going to scream and shout at you if you don't do it. I'm not going to let it affect the way that I feel about you. It's pretty basic parenting. It's really simple. If you don't do it, you just won't get your pocket money that week. That got their attention. All you need to do is know that at six o'clock, I'm going to come to your room. I'm going to check to see calmly. I'm just going to see if it's clean and tidy. Well, the first week, they were all over it. Worked like a dream. But the next few weeks, some of them didn't bother, and it would get to kind of Sunday afternoon, and lethargy had kicked in, and the science experiment was very much kicking off again. And I stayed calm. I know, brownie points. I stuck to my guns. And you know what? There was grumbling, there was complaining when that little deposit of pocket money didn't make it into their accounts that week. And then after a few more weeks, something happened that I wasn't expecting. After a few more weeks, they began to experience how much better it was to live in a clean and tidy room. And they actually embraced the discipline. Mom won. Yes. Thank you. Now, before you get too excited, they hadn't been transformed into married condo just just so that you could manage your expectations. And at times, they really couldn't be bothered. But most weeks, they disciplined themselves to do it because the training had enabled them to recognize that life was that much better if your room is clean. Not because of me, not better for me, better for them. When we see discipline as punishment, we miss the training that God might be wanting to lead us into. And if we miss out on the way that God might be wanting to train us through a particular situation, then we might miss out on the very thing that releases the most fruit in our lives. You know, 
I mentioned my children, my eldest daughter turned 16 just this week. Can I just show off for a moment? None of my other children are here, so it's okay. Uh, she is like the most gorgeous human being, I just have to say. But I also need to tell you that when I was pregnant with her, I, I was like full of excitement, full of anticipation at her arrival. And, and then I remember she was born and I was just flooded with these feelings of love for her. And I remember those first few weeks just kind of staring at her, like just in absolute admiration at this little beautiful creature that was my daughter. But alongside all those lovely new mum gooey feelings, I was also finding it really hard. I found it really tough, the change that took place, the season change that was taking place before my eyes. I felt like I had been run over by a very cute pink steamroller. You know, my whole life was turned upside down. My identity felt like it changed overnight. But you know, one of the most significant things that happened in that season was that church stopped being a place where I could meaningfully encounter God. I loved our church. We were at HTB in London at the time. Tim was on staff there, so Sunday was a busy day for him, and I would inevitably end up going to church with a small baby on my own across London, and honestly, it just became like a logistical nightmare rather than a spiritual experience. And I began to spiritually dry up because I was so reliant on that Sunday fix. And God began to speak to me. He began to say, Rachel, you're gonna have to find me out of the meeting. And I ignored him. For months on end, I'd pray, Lord, this Sunday, this is gonna be the Sunday where I'm, all the feels, you know, shabba dabba do, all the feels, and nothing, logistical operation. And then it took months and months of this for me to realize that in a sense, God was using that experience to set up disciplines of connecting with him on my own in the secret place. And I began to realize that it didn't matter how early I had to get up in the morning because I had to have that time with him. It became a necessity rather than an optional extra. You know, the other thing that came out of that season was I felt God say, you start gathering other women that felt like you. And so I started this ministry called Molo that ministered to other mums in that season of life. Now, I tell you now, not because it was the most difficult season in my life. There have been other seasons that have been much more challenging and much more painful than that. But I tell you that story because I look back now and I realize how clearly to me God was using something that I was finding so hard. When I felt so distant from God, he was using it to train me, to set me up for a future season and to release kingdom fruit through me in that context through the shape of this ministry molo that God set up. I wanna end with this. Pruning is an invitation. It is an invitation to reframe 
some of those experiences that I think probably a whole bunch of us in this room are walking through right now, to experience it through the lens of a loving father or a, a brilliant, diligent gardener whose only desire for us is our good, is our flourishing. That's not that we pretend that it's not hard. That's a whole nother message. But we allow those experiences not to crush our faith, not to crush our hope, not to eradicate our peace, but to allow God to prune us through our pain. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on socials at The Orchard Women to find out more about everything coming up. 